Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter and thank you for joining us. Today we're going to talk about Brexit, but, but wait a minute. We're not going to do it in political terms. We're going to try to do this to talk about Brexit as an economic and financial reality. We'll cover the challenges of negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU, the future of London as a financial center, and the impact for companies and people, and especially retirees and immigrants, and the real day-by-day changes to the country's business climate. We're going to be joined later by my friend Caroline Atkinson, and there's no better person to discuss these issues with because Carrie is a former President Barack Obama. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. There's no better person to discuss these issues with because Carrie is former President Barack Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics and the former head of global policy for Google. So here we are, Peter, three and a half years after the referendum, three prime ministers, dozens of delays and attempts at negotiations, a really, really bumpy ride. Brexit is here. Or to paraphrase Boris Johnson's catchy campaign phrase, Brexit got done. So after being in the EU since 1973, when it was still called the EEC, this January, January 30th, 2020, the UK will become the first member state to withdraw from the union. And with its exit comes extensive, extensive political fallout, which has been widely discussed everywhere, which we'll try to avoid today. But because less clear are the economic and financial ramifications of this um, kind of historical issue and what the real impact will be for business, finance and the economic uh, future of this country, 66 million, really still remains to be seen. So look, I, I think we ought to start by saying that the optimists, I mean, the people who who supported Brexit, believe that with the political stalemate over, a stronger economy is going to sort of result because the uncertainty of Brexit is over. And, you know, I think there's maybe some truth in this as both optimism and stability is going to have improved over the past weeks. London's FTSE market uh, has has bounced since the Brexit uh, uh, has been sort of cemented by the recent election. Johnson's wide mandate after last month's election is going to pave the way for advancing his economic agenda. Um, after a year of slowdowns and, and and weak performance in most centers, that's probably going to be a good thing. But you know, I, I just can't believe that companies are going to view this turbulent year in which they're going to see what they're going to be looking for all the eyes to be crossed and and t eyes to be dotted and t's to be crossed um on a final brexit deal you know global investors are going to be wondering what is the united kingdom going to be like uh in its relationship to europe and its relationship to the united states and that's you know i don't think the uncertainty is over so Johnson's already started on a rocky start. His in attempts to negotiate a wide-ranging trade agreement with the EU have cut his honeymoon short. He's already complicated and reaching out to the new president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, trying to get this done this year. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. The first meeting was very complicated. The EC is not as optimistic as Johnson is trying to finish this very quickly. So all expectations of Johnson moving very smoothly with this trade agreement are really probably not going to happen. And yeah, I, she gave a really tough speech. It was amazing. She gave this really tough speech at the London School of Economics, which 
right after meeting him, or I'm not sure if it was right after, right before meeting him, where she basically said, you know, let's get real. This is going to take a long time to hammer out. And I think that his expectations of finishing this by the end of the year were realistic to begin with. And now as things stand are probably even more unrealistic, even and, and to make matters worse, he's also promised to simultaneously negotiate a trade agreement with the U.S. So I think his plate is quite full at this time. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know how you know, one could even think that, you know, when you negotiate such heavy topics like security or travel or medicine or transportation or data sharing or airplane free skies, I mean, it's just negotiating trade deals takes years. And to top it off, promised, you know, with this new agreement that you mentioned with the United States also doesn't seem realistic. You know, for Trump, this is an election year. It's going to be completely unpredictable. He's not going to, he's not going to negotiate a trade agreement in the midst of an election year. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of bumps in the road for companies as they are thinking about what to do with their relationship with the United Kingdom. I think it's particularly concerning in London. London will face the strongest headwinds, no doubt, and will struggle to remain a global financial powerhouse without access to the European market that it's enjoyed for 40 years. There are over 2 million employees of the financial sector in London. London is the gateway city for Europe, and for many years and until recently, the world's number one financial capital. So already many of the largest uh, of the more than 300 large firms in the city have become have begun relocating as a response to Brexit. And there's also now a new competition uh, among European cities like Paris, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, even Dublin, Madrid, who are trying to fill the spot to be the biggest capital market in Europe. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think most economic studies are painting a pretty grim picture, Mooney. I mean, they point to worsening economic situation, even if the trade agreements with the EU are implemented soon. And it's unclear what the trade and investment relationship will be in the future. And that's going to have lasting impact for companies, you know, in London, obviously, but also beyond UK borders. You know, I, I think international companies are are looking at this with a really in you know in a really hard light and they're bracing themselves for the cutoff between the United Kingdom and the European Union and I think the adjustment period is going to certainly be uh, a difficult one with I think political consequences for the government Peter, you're right. This is a gloomy picture and economists and experts are painting kind of a, a very gloomy future for Britain. But what's interesting is that UK citizens are growing more optimistic and optimistic. And while studies all point to no growth for the British economy, the markets have indeed recovered. Polls show evidence of a modest Brexit bump or Brexit bounce. And the British people's views of the economy and job security are a lot more upbeat than economists and experts outside of Britain have um, have looked at. All right. Well, Mooney, I guess this is the right time to bring up our guest, Caroline Atkinson, to help us really figure out this paradox and shed light on what the next steps are for the United Kingdom. Caroline, an analyst, economist, expert on global affairs, is a Peterson Institute scholar, a former head of global policy for Google. She worked with President Obama as national security advisor for international economics after working at the International Monetary Fund and the Treasury Department. And she was a journalist working for the Washington Post, The Economist, and the Times of London. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us, and it's a pleasure to have you on Altamar. Thanks, Pietro. Lovely to be here. So, 
give us a sense, give us a general snapshot of what the economic challenges are in the immediate short term, but also what the longer term economic challenges are for Great Britain? Well, the first challenge is, can they get economic growth going at a stronger pace? There's no question, but that the Brexit uncertainty has slowed down growth. GDP has been lower in the years since the referendum, and especially actually last year when there was so much uncertainty. And there's not much of a surprise about that because Mostly businesses hate uncertainty and they put investment plans on one side and even consumers, they're nervous what's going to happen to their jobs. So that's the first challenge. The second one, which is similar, is that productivity growth in the UK has been very weak. Now, that has the upside, which is that more people are employed than would be the case for the same rate of growth than if um, productivity had risen. But ultimately, raising living standards over the long term does require a productivity increase. And that's something that needs that requires investment including investment from overseas. It requires some business confidence and it requires innovation, which actually the UK can be pretty good at if you look at them as a tech center, for example. But that's been kind of crushed by the obsession, if you like, with Brexit and with the future economic relationships that the UK is going to have with the world. Caroline, talks with the EC have um, not proceeded as smoothly as expected, to say the least. What are the hot issues on the table that are uh, likely to delay the 2020 deadline? Well, I'll just start by saying that um, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, has said that he just wants a slim deal on trade, zero tariffs, zero quotas. And just this week or just recently, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, commission president now, said, fine, zero tariffs, zero quotas and zero dumping. And the real issue is what does zero dumping mean? Because these days, trade is not like you build something and then you sell it overseas. There are deep integrated supply chains, a car manufactured in the United Kingdom that sold, uh, that now can just go easily and be sold in France or Germany, consists of many different parts. So what kind of standards will the car manufacturers have? What kind of standards will the food industry implement? What kind of standards will the financial services industries implement? And what will the EU accept? That means that there are a bunch of hot issues that just run quickly through food. Will the EU believe that the meat that's coming from the UK is safe? Fish, which is always a big issue for uh, nations that are island nations or that do fishing. But uh, they'll probably find a way around that. Interesting thing about fish now is that 80% of the British catch is actually exported to the EU. So it shows the dependence of the UK on the EU. Financial services has got a lot of attention, and that's kind of a big issue. But actually, there are a lot of other services as well. Uh, which depend in the UK, there are small architectural firms, small media firms, small design firms that now have big access into the EU. What everybody's been talking about is trade in goods. What about trade in services? 
that's another big issue. So the 2020 deadline has been overly optimistic, you think? It's way overly optimistic to resolve all these issues. It may not be overly optimistic to come to a kind of an agreement on the trade in goods, which is a pretty slimmed down agreement. And then for the EU, they face the question of how tough are they going to make it for Johnson to have a fudge? And some people think that the EU has been too tough so far. It's quite an interesting point because I was talking to a Frenchman about this because generally I think the view is that the UK has been extraordinary and in some ways idiotic and certainly not well governed in taking this decision. But this guy's view was that for Europe, they have been quite rigid in their discussions with the UK. And that is the European way. You know, they have rules. That's very important to keep them all together. The UK is bucking against those rules. How much will the Commission insist on having uh, abeyance to those rules if you're going to allow, you know, as I said, the architectural firm, the small consultancy, the bank, the food exporter, the fisherman to go on trading with Europe after 2020. And just to say, it does depend an awful lot also on what does Boris Johnson want to have? What is his vision? So, you know, there's been all this wonderful talk about um, Singapore on the Thames or whatever, you know, and I, I guess that is a um, code for what type of financial center are you going to be? And of course, London today is this, perhaps the world's most important financial center. What is going to happen to the city of London, to the financial core of what London stands for with with London now being the capital only of a relatively small country of 66 million? Yeah, that's a great question. If the UK decides to try for Singapore on the Thames, and more recently they've kind of backed off from that, if they try to do that, then the EU will be tough in resisting financial institutions doing EU business out of London. And that will make it very hard for the UK actually to be a global financial centre. They need to have strong regulations in order to continue to be the global financial centre that they are. It's quite likely that the EU, many people think that the ECB and the EU will not allow a certain core element of euro transactions to take place in London, whatever, even if there's a backing off from Singapore on the Thames, that some of the so-called back office, the clearing that implies uh, provision of liquidity in a problem, the, e the ECB will not want to be in the position of bailing out institutions that are located in London. But there's many other things that London is good at doing and that many traders are there for, complicated derivatives and structured finance. And it's in a convenient place uh, from a time zone point of view in between the US and Asia. So it's possible that they will remain, will retain their role as a global financial center. But they are that now. 
So uh, the danger is that they slip away from that. And maybe there won't be a truly global financial center in Europe because there isn't another alternative. Things will go differentially to Frankfurt, Paris, Amsterdam, Dublin, and maybe New York will take over that role. Whereas so far, big as New York is, it's really deep markets are in domestic US um, trading. And London is the global center. So that is to play for. And again, there is this paradox that Boris Johnson, that the Brits <laughs> voted to leave uh, the European Union. They reaffirmed in the December election that that was what they meant to do. But there are two really different strands of uh, desire. One was just a general sort of, we haven't liked the way the world has worked out for us. We're fed up from the more depressed regions, people whose incomes haven't gone up, a kind of desire to return to a safer and perhaps more, not really more prosperous, but more certain past. And then there are the radicals that want to be an independent, you know, Britain alone. And the irony is that the more the prime minister and the British government negotiate a deal that is like, forget the EU, we're going to do our own regulations, they're going to be different, we're going to have our own way of doing things. Probably the worse the economy will be for people who are in manufacturing. You know, Airbus employs 15,000 people in Wales and connected industries account for a third of manufacturing jobs in Wales. So if you, as the UK government, say, well, we don't care about EU standards anymore, we're going to diverge, you're really going to threaten the manufacturing heart, such as it, you know, what still remains in the UK. And that those will be the voters that put Boris Johnson in power just now. But let me push you a little bit, because what I'm hearing when I when I asked about the the, the core of the city of London, the financial stuff, is that perhaps the threats of this massive exodus of global service companies and everybody's going to be fleeing London is a bit overblown. And maybe London survives, maybe slightly smaller, maybe slightly reconfigured, but maybe, but the chances are that London survives. That, am I right in hearing you say that? Yes, I think that's right. And I was chatting with somebody a year ago, and actually when I was at Google, they were considering making a big investment in, uh, in new premises in London. And um, they said, look, London's a huge city. It's a multicultural city. It's been a city for thousands of years. It was a city before the EU, after the EU. It can continue to be a great city. It combines a lot of global issues. You know, it's a fun place to be. And I think that will remain the same. But the question is whether they can hold on to the EU business, the euro, dollar, the euro business that has been a big, um, you know, a growing part of global transactions. Changing tack a little bit, um, Caroline, Boris Johnson has announced that at the same time, he will also be negotiating a trade agreement with the U.S., with Donald Trump. Um, there's been- In an election year. Exactly. <laughs> and um, 
difficult as that is, there's also very touchy subjects such as including the NHS, the National Health Service, into the trade deal and other very complicated um, kind of topics on the table. Is this overly optimistic to do both at the same time? It's overly optimistic to think of having a U.S. trade deal, in my view, in any short time frame. The NHS is a total third rail. Uh, I can remember years ago being in the U.K. when the U.S. government at that time, the Obama administration, was discussing the possibility of a deal with Europe and being <clears throat> wildly attacked by people who were suspicious of an American takeover of the NHS, which was absolutely not what was planned, but I think that the NHS is something very special in UK politics. So that's one point. But another point that people don't talk about so much is food. You may all have heard about um, the European dislike of American habit of chlorinating chicken. Um, well, if the UK wants to have a trade deal with the US, they will need to be accepting chlorinated chicken. So what does that mean about their close relations with the EU, which is a much bigger trade partner now than the US? Because the EU will, sure as anything, stop any food or chickens coming from the UK that might be potentially chlorinated. And then there are bigger issues, GMO, which the US would insist on allowing, which Europe would want to control. So those issues will be very important. And just on the UK's vulnerability, say, to fresh food, which is one of the big issues. Before the worries of a no deal, all of these um, sandwich makers and other fresh food providers came out saying, we're going to go out of business within a couple of days if we can't have access to fresh food and vegetables from Europe. Salad would be gone in three days in London if they don't allow in the um, fresh food from Europe. You know, there are 100 or 200 trucks a day that cross between the UK and Europe. Though there are very deep supply chains on a number of fresh food is one thing, manufacturers are others. These would get pulled apart if you had a deal that did not incorporate some recognition of mutual standards. But a lot of Tories say we don't want those mutual standards. That's what we hate about Brussels, all of the different rules about what you can call jam and what you can put in, um, you know, a mince pie or something. That's not what they want to continue. So it will depend on how much fudging is enabled. So as we're sitting here being skeptical and a little pessimistic, the numbers... Um, when British citizens are polled are, are surprisingly upbeat. I think there's a, there's a level of confidence now after a lot of uncertainty, but um, is the Brexit bounce real? Um, there seems to be a discrepancy between economic uh, forecasters and the people on the street. That's a great point. I think people on the street are just glad that this sort of national nightmare seems to be over. The fact that you couldn't talk to, you know, friends, families, that was a big divide. And it's interesting to remember that four years ago or so, Brexit and the EU was way down on people's lists of concerns. It just was brought up 
by this division that came out with the referendum. So I think people are just thrilled at the thought that they can now either forget politics or really worry about the things that affect their lives, their jobs, the the National Health Service, and infrastructure, other issues that are more, you know, day-to-day issues. And there, it really depends, again, on how Boris Johnson governs. Does he govern to build up the British economy, to put much many more resources into the NHS, but also to invest in infrastructure and education and so on. If he does, then whilst growth, and I, all the economists, and I agree with them, believe that growth will be much, will be significantly below over a period of time what it would have been if the UK stayed in Europe, that's relative. So if Boris Johnson, if the government pushes ahead with measures that boost underlying growth, yeah, it may not be as fast as it might have been in Europe, but nobody's going to be comparing that with a hypothetical. So, Carrie, we're going to give you a chance to pontificate broadly at the end, but I want to, like, really narrow the focus to a couple of niggling issues that I'm really curious about, about what happens with Brexit. And the first one is, so what happens with Northern Ireland? I mean, this has been, Northern Ireland has been like the the prism through which a lot of this argument has gone through. And so how does, how in particular, how does now this sort of separation in the Irish Channel affect Northern Ireland's economy? Northern Ireland's economy is probably better off given um, Boris Johnson sold them down the river, uh, his DUP partners, because there had to be a border somewhere. And the Northern Irish unionists really wanted that border not to be between them and the rest of of the UK, between them and Great Britain. Um, And nobody else wanted the border to be between across the island of Ireland. And the unionists lost, so the border will be somewhere down the Irish Sea. Northern Ireland has close links with the Irish economy. It's very important for Northern Ireland to be able to continue those links. And so I think it's probably better for them that the divide will be between them and the and Great Britain rather than between across Ireland. That's just on economic grounds. Obviously, politically, it's much better. Then the question of what happens to their economy comes back to the question of what happen- how close will the United Kingdom be to Europe? And just one point that I think is interesting. Normally, when you're negotiating relations between countries in a trade deal and services deal, you start from two different places and you decide how much to converge. In the case of the UK and Europe, you're starting from being together and you're wondering how much to diverge. And a lot of that desire for divergence is political. You know, we talked about the regulations that the British don't like about Brussels. But every bit of divergence, especially if it comes suddenly, will make it harder for people in the UK to do the trading and work in Europe that they've done before. So I would bet that Boris Johnson will try to limit the divergence on standards and so on. Question is, will Europe 
kind of give them the benefit of the doubt? Or will they say, no, we need a kind of legal system that makes that promises us that you haven't diverged? For Northern Ireland, if the UK diverges a lot from Europe, that will be damaging for them. But I think that this deal overall makes a united Ireland um, a more real possibility going forward. That's uh, a subject for a whole nother podcast that we'll have you back for. Let me ask you the second niggling question. We're running out of time. So um, immigration was a huge part of the Brexit politics. So I don't want to I don't want to get into that, but the status of foreigners living in the United Kingdom, and particularly those who are working in London, there's so many uh, foreigners, um, what, what is going to happen to them? And similarly to that, what is going to happen to all of those British retirees who have bought um, their villas in Mallorca or Tuscany or the Algarve in Portugal? And what, what happens to those people? Basically, not much. The withdrawal agreement uh, set out the terms on which people who were already in, you know, in the U- UK who are European citizens and vice versa could stay. There may be bureaucratic mess up and probably some stories coming from that, but because you have to apply for, um, you know, residency, but the terms for getting the residency are very clear and will be fine. So it's more a question of can the bureaucracy handle the great avalanche of uh, requests. In places like Spain, you know, the, the Spanish may want to pick a fight about, well, you can't have access to our health service. It goes back to what happens to the NHS. I think those things will get worked out. In the end, the Europeans that will matter in driving the deal are the French and the Germans. There may be flare-ups from Spain, Portugal, elsewhere, but it's really going to come back to the interests of France and Germany. One last question, which is there is one border that nobody talks about, which is the border between Gibraltar and Spain. What's going to happen there? Again, the I don't think anything much will happen. I think the Spanish will try to make this an issue, may try to make it an issue that uh, citizens have to be of Spanish residency as well. But in the end, that won't be something, that won't be a ditch that the French and Germans want to die in. Carolina, crystal ball before we go. Five years down the road, what will Britain look like? I think it'll look pretty similar. Big question. If you have a really tough, hard exit and a deal that is just on trade in goods that doesn't accept any European standards, or if the Europeans say you need to have everything adjudicated in the European Court of Justice, which I think would be anathema to the Brits, then five years down the road, you would not have a car manufacturing industry in the UK because they depend on the deep supply chains and you know, complicated things like the rules of origin in order to be able to keep doing their piece of the manufacturing. But, you know, we have to hope that businesses and politicians will figure out that that's not really in anyone's interests. Caroline Atkinson, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you, Pietro. Great fun. 
So Muni, one one of the things that I certainly came out with, you know, I I remember being in Brussels at a conference only two years ago where a important European policymaker called Brexit the act of collective suicide that nobody has ever seen before in the world. And I think after hearing Caroline, the thing which I come out with is life's going to go on. People are not going to be able to compare growth rates that would have been with Europe with growth fins that actually are. And I think, you know, this is going to be a difficult time, but I think both Europe and the UK are probably going to muddle through. I think anything is better than the past few years where there's been so much uncertainty. And so there is a certain kind of feeling of relief, Peter. But I do believe the long view is is true. And, and I think that we, we came out with this interview uh, a little more optimistic and that things will settle in. But I do anticipate, especially with Boris Johnson um, being so positive and upbeat, that there's going to be significant. He's already lived through uh, a few bumps and I think it is going to be a bumpy ride for him and he's probably going to be the fallout But I think the, the, the doomsday sayers have, have, uh, oh, have, yeah. have, overstated. have overstated it. I do think that politics is going to once again be a big deal. Having now spent the last half hour talking about economics, I do think Scottish nationalism is on the rise. Uh, the, Scot- the Scots are going to push for a vote and there may be a real danger to the United Kingdom's unitedness. This won't be the last Brexit or UK episode on Altamar. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. 